0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz
1: every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
2: Sunday, May 15th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. The White House continues to fight inflation and a baby formula shortage.
0: They're releasing the uh, oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. Um, They are trying to get uh, force companies into lowering
1: prices, saying, hey, you're price gouging. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Is the former president himself just not Trumpy enough for some voters? Pennsylvania will weigh in on this in primary elections Tuesday.
3: The interesting strategic question would be how daunting or how concerning is the, the Barnett surge to Oz and McCormick? And would those candidates train their guns? I think the answer is they already have begun to on Barnett.
2: This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Inflation is the number one domestic priority for President Biden. He said so last week from the White House. There are things we can do and we can address and we need to do. One of those things the president said that could be done is confirming his nominees for the Federal Reserve. The Senate has done that. Thursday, Fed Chair Jerome Powell was confirmed for a second term by the Senate by a wide bipartisan tally. President Biden is also trying to compare his plan to bring down the price of things like prescriptions and child care with proposals put forward by Republicans. They have no plan to bring down energy prices today, no plan to get us to a cleaner energy independent future tomorrow. But there isn't just growing worry about the price of things like gas and food and airfare and a host of other products, but also the availability of essentials like, for instance, baby formula. This week, the White House convened calls with producers and retailers amid a shortage of infant formula that is also raising questions about regulations in supply chain disruptions. Fox Business Network's Edward Lawrence covers the White House economic policy. He's back with us this week to provide key context. All right. So let's start, Edward, with uh, CPI, because obviously inflation, what people are, are paying for goods is... Uh, uh, a major uh, concern here at the White House, um, you know it was down slightly, right, but it was also up.
0: Explain to me that disconnect yeah <laughs> well, so it was down. It was eight point three percent a year over year, and that's down a little bit from the eight and a half percent year over year. But when you look month over month. Uh, it was actually up 0.6%. So that 8.5% is is what it was last month, year over year. This month, it was 8.3%. So that is a slight downtick in overall CPI inflation. But when you talk about core inflation, which is the White House loves to talk about, you take out food and energy prices, um, month over month, it actually went up 0.3% 0.3% to uh, 0.6%. Uh, you know, bottom line for Americans is that we're all paying more. Uh, we're near record prices with inflation on everything from uh, food to energy. I mean, just go to the store, you know, price of eggs up 23%. Chicken is up 16%. Milk is up almost 15%. So everything that we're buying is up. Uh, and, and that hurts Americans and the White House right. is trying to message that.
2: I mean, and I guess that this, the the part of that that sort of resonates is we, we got I guess what in the most recent unemployment report that wages are up, but they're not. That's up like like what what four percent or something like that. Five and a half. Yeah. So wages which are up, which is great. Which is great. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely
0: great. More people have more money in their in their pockets from their paychecks, yeah. but the problem is you have inflation at eight point three percent. So you're then net losing money. And that's what Americans are feeling. That's what the poll numbers are showing. I mean, yeah. the president's in the 30s when he's talking about his handling of inflation.
2: Well, he said this week that inflation is his number one domestic priority. Right. We've talked a little bit about this in the past. What are the options here for the – I know the Fed has options and they're doing right. what they're doing. What can the White House do?
0: Right. So – and, and – it depends on who you talk to. So from the White House... <laughs> what is the they, White House that yeah, they can they, do? <laughs> the white, what they say they are doing. So they don't have any new plans related to this. They're releasing the uh, oil from the Strategic yep. Petroleum Reserves. Um, they are trying to get Uh, force companies into lowering prices, saying, hey, you're price gouging, sort of shaming, public shaming companies to eat up some of that cost. Um, And it's just not working. Um, You you talk to Republicans on Capitol Hill and they'll tell you, as you know, all you have to do is open up U.S. energy independence. And I heard uh, one of the Senator Brasso, I believe it was, said in 90 days you would see Inflation come down, because that could the, just the signal that you're going to open up energy independence would bring down gas prices would then bring down basically everything else. Because the problem is, diesel fuel is also at a record high. Okay. I'm talking about gasoline. And diesel fuel and that matters, you That's might like the say truck. Hey, shoes. Right They yeah. might say, "Hey, I don't have a diesel car," or I have an electric car." but you know what? The stuff that you bought uh, at Walmart, the stuff that you bought at the grocery store, the stuff that you bought uh, for your kids, all traveled on a truck that uses diesel.
2: So uh, what – I mean the other part of this I guess as well is is trying to renew elements of what I guess used to be Build Back Better. It's not that anymore. It is a much smaller uh, agenda. That's the other part of uh, the president's push here, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. say, listen, let's make prescription drugs capped.
0: And if you listen very closely to their words, Mm -hmm. they're saying we're going to lower costs. Right. Right. That's not lowering inflation.
2: Well, but it's like, lowering if you have costs more for other areas. things. Correct. That doesn't have as much of an impact. So,
0: so they're focusing on health care, prescription drugs, yeah. particularly. Yeah. They're focusing on child care. And they want Congress to pass another spending package mm-hmm. to lower the costs for some people uh, for child care, say, for instance, and allow Medicare to uh, negotiate, negotiate, right, just much like the VA does. And that would lower prescription drug costs. The problem is go to the gas station. Well, You're still so paying
2: more. I guess the idea is so those things prescription drugs childcare aren't drivers of inflation right but if americans are paying less for those things
0: it is maybe easier to to handle inflation it's a Portion of Americans, and yeah. you know, and those people—that's basically the low-income bracket—is right. able to handle that. The problem is, um, you know, the price of their food is going to be more. So okay. you have to make real choices as to what you're going to buy. I mean, um, I mean, like there, I said, chicken. I mean, chicken. You go buy chicken; it's 16 percent more expensive. There's no plan to to give them money to buy chicken.
2: So the Federal Reserve most recently increased that that interest rate that we've talked about in the past half a percentage point, right. which is it was the largest single interest rate hike in 20 years, right. they're going to do that six or seven more times?
0: Yes. Uh, yeah. The, the way that the, so the Federal
2: Reserve... Is going to get to
0: buy a house? It's going to get very expensive. The, the, way, the way the Federal Reserve has to, to slow down or to, to deal with inflation is a blunt instrument. And that's the interest rates. And they raise interest rates and it slows demand. Um, they're trying to work this sort of thread this needle to make sure that they don't Uh, raise interest rates too high and start a recession where people just stop buying, Uh, but they want to slowly raise it up. The problem is, in order to handle inflation, you need interest rates, the Fed's interest rate, higher than inflation. So that's 8%, which is what Paul Volcker did back uh, in the late early 80s, late 70s, is he raised interest rates so high that it just crushed the economy, brought inflation back in check, and then they were able to bring in, bring the interest rates back down. So the problem is the Fed doesn't want to go that high.
2: The, the worry there and would we, be a recession, we can't, right? Exactly. We can't handle that. A hard landing, that. not a soft landing? Exactly. Is exactly. That what that's, they call it? That's <laughs> the difference, yeah.
0: And, and people just don't want that. So you're looking at the price of a mortgage rate, your credit card interest rates. Mm-hmm. They're going to keep going up as these uh, big tick ups, these 50, these 50 basis points moves in the interest rate, all that stuff's going to be more expensive.
2: And the worry then is businesses have a harder time expanding, have a harder time right. hiring.
0: Right. Well, in businesses, instead, not a harder time hiring, it's, it's more, more expensive. expensive. Right. Yeah. So they're just not going to do it. Uh, And and that's the problem, is is you're trying to thread that needle where businesses don't have to say, oh my gosh, I can't afford this, so therefore we got to cut a couple employees or not hire those next employees, and then that sort of snowballs.
2: Let me talk to you about the other major issue here that's developed. It's been developing for a few weeks, but it's really got an attention this week here in Washington, and that is this uh, baby formula shortage. Um, I know the president is meeting with retailers, meeting with manufacturers to see what solutions are out there. My understanding is that this was kind of a... Confluence of of things, right? You had a major recall,
0: right? So yeah, you had a, a major recall from a number of companies, uh, and in addition to supply chain problems,
2: the supply chain issue is one thing, but the recall, the government can't do anything about that, can they? They, they can't,
0: no, and, and that's just that's simply a fact of life. Uh, they they had some issues with some of the formulas, I understand. Yeah. Babies were getting sick, uh, some maybe passed away, I don't know, but yeah. the FDA to be very cautious yeah. pulled the formula. Um, that combined with the supply chain issues, because the companies, you know, in, in a normal cycle, a company could then just shift, buy more from China, which is where most of the product, ba- the base products that make the formula come from, uh, buy more of those products, and, and then go forward. The problem is China's locked down, you know, right. again. So you've got a
2: ton of ships that are
0: stuck there. Issues, and, well, right? And, and so and there at-
2: are there are some. Pre- from what I was reading, some pretty specific regulations with importing baby food. It's not yes. as if you can just look elsewhere.
0: Correct. Yes, and you have you have systems in place in order to be able to handle what you can import for baby food because obviously babies are, are fragile. You need to make sure and you protect them. Um, so that's just that's where we are right now. You know, Abbott, uh, one of the companies, mm-hmm. said hey, it could be months before we're able to resupply. So
2: what I mean, that's another huge political liability for yeah. this administration. Yeah. What's the solution?
0: Yeah, and that's what they're trying to figure out right now. There's a lot of scrambling <laughs> going on. Like
2: a private sector issue, right?
0: Private sector, but it's also that supply chain issue. You need yeah. to talk about China, our reliance on China, and because of that, we're in this mess because of the recall. So, so
2: is there a way to maybe have domestic production ramp up on baby formula? And that's what
0: they're going to have to look at. The problem is that, that could take years. I mean, we don't have the plants here. We just don't, don't have the capacity yeah. um, for the plants we do have here to be able to do that.
2: I mean, it's such a tough buying for these parents right now. It
0: is. And I've heard, uh, we actually have a producer at Fox Business who went to six different grocery stores uh, and and places where she gets her food in New Jersey and could not find the baby formula that she needs. I mean,
2: it's you look at having lack of access, that's driving up the price of it. You know, I'm many years removed from needing to buy buy baby (laughs) formula. But when my wife and I did buy it, I was telling a colleague the other day, of all of the expenses you try and factor in when you have a child that was the one I think we we underestimated the most right. it is right. pretty expensive in regular times and now you look at what's happening and, yeah, it's an, it seems like an untenable position for a lot of families.
0: It is. And then you run into the situation of hoarding because people know well, it, sure, it's scarce. Sure, sure. So, therefore, they're going to keep going and try and buy more and more and more. And, therefore, it becomes even more scarce.
2: A lot of uh, these issues now uh, top of mind for voters, certainly top of mind here at the White House. Edward, appreciate you helping us understand it again. Thanks, Jared.
1: This past week, polling out of Pennsylvania was messy. The latest Fox News poll found Kathy Barnett, a relative political newcomer who lost a Philadelphia House race in 2020, just four points behind the man former President Trump has endorsed, Dr. Mehmet Oz, and just one point behind a man some conservatives said Trump should have endorsed, Dave McCormick. Analysts, pundits, and politicos like Colin Reed from South and Hill Strategies are watching closely.
2: But well, ultimately, the strongest steel is forged through the hottest fires, and whoever comes out of that primary is gonna be well positioned to take on in the general.
1: Since surging, Barnett has faced questions about some of her own past comments and tweets. Trump himself on Thursday warned against backing her, saying she can't win in the fall. But some conservatives were vocally upset. The former president went with Oz, questioning just how conservative he was. The head of the Republican Party in Huntington County declared the Trump era over in Pennsylvania. Some conservative groups have also picked alternatives to the Trump endorsement. In Pennsylvania, they're backing Barnett. But 18% 18% of respondents in the Senate Republican primary are undecided, and some of those voters like Rich Delio and Joe Morales talked to America's newsroom Friday.
2: I, I think they're all great candidates. So I just have to really keep thinking about it and reflecting on it, uh, because I voted for Kathy when she ran for Congress. I, you know, It's a real conundrum for me. I can't hop on a uh, government subsidized you know, transportation uh, to get where we need to go. We're miles uh, from each other. We live in rural Pennsylvania. Those. Those things matter. Prices matter to us.
1: Either way, it's a very tight Republican race in the Senate primary with a seemingly much less tight race on the Democratic side. The state's other senator is a Democrat. And as Colin Reed notes. Anyway, you slice and dice it. Pennsylvania's Senate race in the general is going to be close. A Republican presidential candidate has won it once since 1988. Uh, so it's going to be tight. That one time was 2016 when Pennsylvania went for Trump by less than a point.
3: Well, we were fortunate at Fox to have been in the field in early March uh, 2022 and then to have just come out of the field. Um, I think our last field date was uh, May 7th. And what we showed with with Oz in particular is he went from 15% in our March survey to 22%.
1: Darren Shaw is a government professor at the University of Texas at Austin and member of the Fox News Decision Desk and Fox News Pollster.
3: So 7% bump, which is on par with the bump that uh, Sands got in Ohio after the Trump endorsement. I'm sorry, Vance, rather. And uh, so there's a, a tendency, I think, to look at those two states, you know, these sort of, in Pennsylvania's case, mid-Atlantic and Ohio, more of a Midwestern, I suppose. But we kind of think of them as comparable in a lot of ways. And you look at them as a pair and think, well, there seems to be like a Trump bump of, of you know, four five, six, seven points or so. Um, and in a crowded Republican primary race, that can be decisive. On the other hand, uh, we had McCormick twenty four percent in March, twenty percent this time around, so a slight drop. But Kathy Barnett went from nine percent to nineteen percent. So you have this, you know, two tiered race basically. At the top, Oz McCormick Barnett who are basically knotted up, only a couple points between them. And then in the next grouping, uh, Carlos Sands and Jeff Bartos at about seven or eight percent. So you got these top two tiers. We found a, a big chunk of the electorate remains undecided. 18%. That's down from 31% in March, but still 18%. And, and the interesting thing, I think, within all the numbers is the extent to which the Barnett vote seems motivated and kind of committed to her in a way we didn't expect. So even if she's chasing a point or two, in some ways her support looks you know kind of more impressive under the microscope. Now, again, this was a week out and we still have several days to go. Maybe she peaked too early or maybe she's her wave is still cresting. I don't know.
1: When Trump endorsed Oz, he said he was picking someone he thinks can win in a general. And he said that about Vance, too, in Ohio. How calculated do you think that was uh, to endorse that way when you look ahead to November, knowing that based on polling, the likely candidate a Republican will face is current Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who's been described as more progressive than many of his Democratic rivals?
3: I think the... The answer to the first question about the strategic calculation of the Trump endorsement, I think, is kind of manifest. Yes, it's, it's clearly influenced his behavior in other states and then his endorsement here. Um, we found in the Fox poll that uh, we asked three things. You know, how much does this matter for your vote? We asked, can beat the Democrat in November? We asked, is really from Pennsylvania kind of trying to get this carpetbagger issue? And then is a strong supporter of Trump? So those three things can win is from Pennsylvania, strong supporter of Trump can win against the Democrat. Sixty two percent said extremely important is really from Pennsylvania. Thirty five percent is a strong supporter of Trump. Twenty seven. So can win against the Democrat is is overwhelmingly the top priority of Republicans here. And I think that's part of the calculation of the former president. Right. That if you make the endorsement against, you know, the argument, I'm throwing my weight behind someone who looks like a winner and can win and win in November. Um, I tie the sort of Trump support to these other strategic calculations in a way that benefits me.
1: We we spoke with Kathy Barnett this past week as she was climbing in the polling. Um, kind of reminds us a little bit of, of Ohio. Matt Dolan started cleaning up at the mm. end there, that wealthy state senator. He lost. He came in third. But still, it was a surprise. He, he did not ask for Trump's endorsement. What do Dolan's and Barnett's sort of late surges Mean and does it come down to that question, that Fox poll question that um, that voters do think it's more important to pick someone who can win than someone who supports Trump?
3: I think it, the assumption or the premise of your question, I think, is is the best answer. Um, I think in both instances, mm-hmm. and again, you know, you you, you hate to uh, you know see two data points and say, well, there's an obvious pattern, but we love obvious patterns. <laughs> it's too ripe to, to pass up. <laughs> to pass up, right? So I see the analogies too. The you know, the word of caution or the caveat I'd pose is, is just, my goodness, the political landscape changes so quickly these days, and especially in these primary mm-hmm. races, the party isn't anchoring the vote choice, right? So the interesting strategic question would be how daunting or how concerning is the, the Barnett surge to Oz and McCormick? And would those candidates train their guns? And I think the answer is they already have begun to on Barnett right? Because they don't necessarily want to draw attention to her campaign. But if that attention is inevitable, don't you want to help shape voters' perceptions as they're kind of tuning in and finding out who Kathy Barnett is? And it seems to me from what I've heard on the ground in Pennsylvania that both candidates have already begun to include her in their trio, and she's taken some incoming As a result of that.
1: I I did mention, uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman, he's really run away from the Democratic pack in in the polling. I guess Congressman Connor Lamb was heavily talked about at first, but not so much anymore. Um, As somebody who studies numbers, how important is it for any race and for either party to have a clear favorite? Like if the Democrats are really focused on Fetterman already, the GOP seems more divided in Pennsylvania. Is is that a, a weak spot?
3: It's a great question. It's actually spawned a, a decent amount of literature and political science under the, the kind of macro heading of divisive primaries, right? Does, does it hurt you hmm. when there's a divisive primary? And the evidence has always been a little skeptical of that, um, that, that it, it seems to be the case that partisans get back on board pretty quickly. It's not that difficult to raise funds in the aftermath of a divisive primary. Right? Those are the two things you're really concerned about, that, that you exhaust all your resources so you have to go out and raise funds uh, and that, uh, you, you know, you're hemorrhaging support from your own side. And in, you know, in recent elections, that trend has been even magnified. That is to say, it's, it's even it seems even easier nowadays to raise funds and to rally, in this case, Republicans behind the party banner, even if you've had kind of a contentious primary. You know, there are exceptions to that, but that's kind of my rule of thumb. And, and so if, if you're a Democrat and you're looking at your chops and, hey, we emerged from this thing unified, they're divided. Well, it's May. And the notion that Republicans aren't going to vote for the Republican in the fall seems pretty dubious.
1: Everyone is focused on Pennsylvania, it feels like, um, at least politically. And there are other primaries on Tuesday. Can you tell us briefly why? I mean, it's a swing state, but it's only gone with a Republican president once in the last 35 years or so. And that was Trump in 2016.
3: Yeah. You know, how and why we we pick certain contests as being more interesting or as being bellwethers is, is, is sort of a mystery to me. I, I think, you know, you can't underestimate the extent to which the Oz presence in the Pennsylvania race has drawn our attention. Now uh, that wouldn't explain why we focused on Ohio, you know, a, a, a week and a half ago, but I, I think it's, you know, why are we focused on Pennsylvania as opposed to North Carolina, you know, where there's a, a, a very interesting race going on. I think it's the celebrity power, right, that 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 contest and then Trump's association with Oz, I think, is also kind of attention. And while Carolina, as you kind of imply, was a really has been an important state and was a really close state in 2020. For some reason, you know, Georgia and Pennsylvania seem to have, and I guess, Arizona as well in the sort of Troika, occupy kind of our collective memory about 2020. Right. Those three states more than other states.
1: The governor's race, Darren, uh, is also happening in Pennsylvania, and I do want to ask about North Carolina, but Doug Mastriano, like Barnett, they're they're both pulling ahead in the, in the polling. Well, Mastriano really is, but some of his fellow lawmakers and Republicans in the state are questioning out loud if he's too far to the right, that it might hurt them in the fall if they're up against Josh Shapiro, the state's current attorney general. Given the sort of swing state status, how important is that when your colleagues and your fellow party members say you might not be electable. And yet you're watching the polling, you know, just take him away.
3: You know, one thing, it's such a simple question in some ways, but I've never really seen strong analysis of it is when you have a a hot Senate race, U.S. Senate race, and then a hot gubernatorial race, do we have any sense all things being equal, kind of what drives what? And and I I pose that question because that's clearly what you're going to have in Pennsylvania moving forward. So is it the case? That, um, you, you know, let's I, I don't know, you kind of pick one of the three Republicans in the Senate race is, is sort of Republican turnout dynamics animated by that Senate race, which could ultimately contribute to control the Senate. Um, and, and there would obviously be a national focus and attention there that one of the Democrats few opportunities to, you know, kind of hold the Senate, I think it occurs in Pennsylvania um, versus, you know, the governorship of the state that's arguably, I think, probably easily argued that is more directly relevant to Pennsylvanians, um, you know, who's who's kind of in the uh, in the state right. house chair. So, you know, and if you've got a, let's just say sort of a slightly more moderate and then uh, slightly more conservative candidates at, at ostensibly the two heads of the ticket, what's driving what? Um, and then obviously the question at hand is not just beyond turnout, but do you get any fall off? Let, let's say you have a slightly more generally appealing Senate candidate and then uh, slightly more um, kind of base-oriented gubernatorial candidate, uh, does that hurt you? Uh, do you have a fall off? Or, you know, is, is sort of the turnout that you get driven by a base candidate in the gubernatorial race, does that actually help the Senate candidate as well? I just think it's, to, you know, it's a simple question, but in some ways it's it's a little complicated. My sense is, is that the Senate drives most everything here. And so I have a hard time believing you're going to get a lot of kind of wayward Republicans who kind of find their way into the Senate race because it's a hot race and they hear about it and they talk about it at parties, but they just can't stomach voting for Mastriano. I just don't think that's the way politics works in 2020. Maybe in 1980, but not in 2020. So I I actually think having somebody who's more base-oriented and conservative might actually help the ticket in terms of turnout.
1: I keep seeing in polling, including in Fox News polling, that people only prefer Republicans by, like, what is it like two to four points it's typically within i would think the margin of error the monmouth poll that came out um thursday said something similar and i i want your thoughts as a pollster i mean are republicans too excited or does it really depend on like the the district or like if you're if you're in a house race it really depends on on your locality
3: oh so let me clarify are we talking nationally sort of the generic ballot the republican advantage is that is that the yeah question you're yeah um You've seen a range. so But for comparative purposes, um, in 2018, the average Democratic advantage in what we call the generic ballot, just who are you going to vote for for Congress, was about five to seven points. And they ended up having, obviously, a really good uh, midterm. What I've seen lately, there have been a few, uh, for instance, the YouGov poll um, and a couple of others that have suggested uh, a slight Democratic advantage. But the lion's share of polling, including the last Fox poll, has the Republicans actually winning um, the generic ballot that's honestly really unusual we haven't seen that too often lately um, and in fact our uh, our fox poll analysis suggests that if the republicans were actually to win the national vote by seven points that you would have a massive swing now this is based on a model you know so it's sort of all other things being equal and there are some things like redistricting has been attenuated maybe even favorable to the democrats uh, a lot of the low-hanging fruit, the Republicans already won in 2020. So it's it, we may be on the low side of that model trend, but the model suggests like a 40-seat swing if you had a seven-point oh. Republican advantage. Yeah, so I'm I'm looking right now just as an average. And Monmouth, CNN, Fox uh, all have a seven-point Democratic Republican, rather, Republican advantage in the generic ballot. Uh, Politico and The Economist have a two-point Democratic advantage. So i'm just looking at the averages and the preponderance of evidence is kind of with us that that there's a hmm. you know like a four point on average republican advantage and that puts the that puts the estimated swing at about 25 to the republicans
1: interesting um so poor north carolina back to them for a minute <laughs> it has been overshadowed <laughs> by pennsylvania their primaries also tuesday we do have some polling on that senate race from uh fox polling at least from late april i believe Um, further corroborated by some more recent polling from other outlets. It looks like President Trump's endorsed pick will likely win, Congressman Ted Budd, and he's run away from his his rivals, including former Governor Pat McCrory. But I was looking at some uh, polling from The Hill. It found Budd would beat the likely Democratic nominee, Sherry Beasley, but she would beat McCrory if he were the GOP nominee. To your earlier point about you know thinking back on 2020 and north carolina sort of not in there in terms of the the states we think of as sort of newly being swing states what do you make of that kind of polling Mm. that a a democrat could be one republican but not another
3: yeah boy i I find north carolina kind of sneaky awesome in terms of a place (laughs) there's a lot going on um i've talked with some democratic consultants who have actually gotten a little frustrated that they can't you know they've obviously won a gubernatorial election in north carolina they've had success at the state legislative level but 15 years ago the north carolina looked like a great target for democrats because of the underlying mobility patterns um, people moving in versus moving out which Mm -hmm. favored the and because of substantial african american population that was unregistered and therefore under mobilized and they kind of thought the blueprint for the democrats was if we go in there and register our african american supporters um, we can make this state competitive. The more recent analysis, I think, is that a lot of the Democrats I've talked to have said, we think we've kind of maxed out um, and, and we still can't quite get the rock up to and over the top of the hill. Um, so that's kind of macro. The, the micro here, the, the sort of Bud McCrory race, which I find really interesting, is that the, the early April polling um, showed uh, a competitive race with Bud with an advantage, the more recent polling, just a couple of polls have come out in late April and early, early May. Bud is winning decisively. Um, I, I believe you need 30% to advance without a runoff to the, uh, mm-hmm. to the Senate race. Bud's polling significantly above that right now. You know, talking about a 25-point edge, basically, on average. Um, that I, I'd say it's surprising. I, I think the rapidity with which he's gained the advantage and the decisiveness of the advantage is surprises surprising. Not so much that he's winning, but whoa. That's kind of a blowout against a guy who's pretty prominent locally. Mm-hmm. Your point about the, uh, the, the general election matchup, I, I think, again, maybe to kind of argue against my earlier argument, or maybe it reinforces it as I think about it. Uh, I think you go broke trying to figure out or, or simply assume that uh, moderate versus conservative or on the Democratic side, moderate versus progressive is, is going to help or hurt. Um, You know, the conventional wisdom is that the median voter, you know, the the place where you hunt where the ducks are, the ducks are in the center. That's where you win elections. And so candidates that have an ability to appeal there win. I don't know that that's true anymore. You you have to have the ability to mobilize the base. You do have to have the ability to reach out or at least frame the election in a way that makes a more conservative position or more progressive position palatable. But usually you do that not by moderating your position on specific issues, but by changing the agenda. Right. So if I'm a progressive and, and uh, you know, people think I'm kind of wacky on climate change or uh, on, uh, you know, gender bathrooms or something like that. Well, what if I talk about access to health care? Um, you know, suddenly being a progressive isn't so unpalatable. Um, and conservatives have the same sort of options, which is I'm talking about, uh, you know, stealing elections. Maybe I'm seen as a little out there. But what if I talk about, um, you know, the response to inflation or trillion dollar uh, government spending during a pandemic and inflation uh, as an inflation stimulant? Well, now, you know, I've, I've moved the ground in a very favorable way. And if we're going to argue about that, it's almost impossible to be too conservative. You know, so I, I think that's the dynamic that you see in a lot of these races. And I think people need to be more sensitive to instead of shifting in left right terms, think about issue dynamics. You know, one side wants to talk about issues X, Y, and Z. The other side wants to talk about A, B, and C. Who wins that fight? And if a conservative wins it, he or she's gonna be pretty appealing.
1: Darren, one more for you. When you look at um, polling you've done or participated in, what is your sense of what is driving people? We know right on its face, it's inflation, abortion has risen as a larger concern for many, but there's some fascinating Fox polling that finds actually these broad sort of philosophical feelings are really the top concerns, like political divisions, the direction of the country, democracy in general. What do you make of that?
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting just to give people a little look under the hood. You know, Dana Blanton, the senior VP of research at Fox, who's a you know a driver, a real force behind the Fox News poll, you know, made the case that we needed to have some of these broader measures. Um, so for you know listeners who don't. Don't know or haven't looked at the latest Fox News national poll. It was it was time to kind of get a you know an updated version or vision on what voters thought was important and, and how it was motivating them. And um, rather than ask just an open ended, "What's the most important problem?" which we've done, uh, we asked their level of concern or interest in specific policy areas. And so you know it's it's Ukraine, it's uh, you know climate change, inflation, immigration, et cetera, were obvious. But but uh, but Dana Blanton wanted to include some broader measures about um, you know the future of the country. Um, the future of American democracy, and, you know, lo and behold, those scored off the charts in terms of what people said was most important to them, was most, most likely to drive them uh, to think about and to consider politics. Mm. And, you know, it, I think what it, what it speaks to in the campaign is the ability to kind of f- frame the election, to, to take a, a set of discrete issue positions and to connect them up to broader concerns about the country we're always sort of stand back in amazement at candidates who are able to do that successfully successfully, whether it's Ronald Reagan or, uh, you know, Barack Obama. And, and I think the side that manages to do that, I think the Republicans have a pretty clear advantage on discrete issues in this election. You know, I think they're, you know, advantaged on inflation, they're advantaged on immigration, they're advantaged on crime, they're advantaged on some sort of values and social issues, but are they going to be able to connect in those up into those sort of smaller issues into a constellation that makes sense to voters? It's like, hey, here are the states. It's about threat to democracy or something like that. And I think Democrats on the other side are doing the same thing, right? Um, they're, they're trying to wrap a few positions up into a general proposition that resonates with the public. And the question is, can they do that? Can they match the times?
1: Yeah, interesting. All it's as if all of those other issues—climate, abortion, inflation—they all fall underneath. The direction of the country or the future of the country darren shaw thank you so much for your time appreciate it
3: my pleasure as always
2: that will do it for this week's fox news rundown from washington next week ukraine aid to the tune of 40 billion dollars stalled in the senate even as leaders from both parties pressed members to pass the measure and warned of urgency We'll follow the latest and talk about what else the U.S. could do. And President Biden heads to East Asia for key meetings with the leaders of Japan and South Korea about North Korea's nuclear ambitions. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy and stay in touch with those you care about. For our entire team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington.